this passage from Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Father, it is our desire to glorify your name. It is our desire that others will see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Father, we live in a sin-sick world where so many who may even have heard of the name of Christ have no interest whatsoever because they don't know what they're facing. They have no concept of what the life to come will be. And so, Father, I pray that our lives will so reflect the glory of Christ that uh, His beauty will be seen, that sin will be shown for what it is, uh, that the fire of our God will burn away the dross in our lives, that we might shine like gemstones in the light of Your Word. We ask Your Word to shine in our lights today. Guide us in our study of it, I pray. Father, and I do pray for this last uh, service of the Genesis weekend, and as they dedicate the summer missions teams, that your presence will be felt in a powerful way, that these young people who are serving you overseas this summer will sense the hand of God resting upon each one of them, empowering them for preparation and then for fulfillment. And then, Father, we also pray for those that have come for this weekend for to look at Simpson College as a possibility for their future, that you will choose the ones that should be with us and grant safe journey home for all. Now I do pray for the President of the United States and for the Prime Ministers of Britain and Spain as they meet in the Azores, that even, even if they don't even sense your presence, you will lead them, that they will make wise decisions, that, uh, Lord, our President will particularly have the wisdom of God in every decision. And again, we would pray as we have prayed before, because you are almighty, you are able to replace, remove, to change the government of Iraq without war even being necessary. We pray that you might uh, raise up from within that country a, a new leadership, one that would, be, uh, would allow opening for the gospel of Christ, above all, to be preached in that land. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to look at some really interesting uh, truths from Scripture, not that they aren't all interesting, but ones that have really particular application to struggles that we may have. We're in the 21st chapter of 2 Samuel, and we're reading at uh, verse 10. Reading at verse 10. And Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky, and she allowed neither birds of the sky to rest on them by day, nor beasts of the field by night. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square at Beth-John, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul in Gilboa. And he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin in Zela, in the grave of Kish, his father. 
Thus they did all that the king commanded, and after that God was moved by entreaty for the land. It's very interesting that whatever family these seven men had. Now you remember if you weren't here last week, because of the sin of Saul in violating the covenant that Israel had made with the Gibeonites many, many generations before, because of Saul's murder and, and attempted ethnic cleansing of the land of these Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, of course, were not Israelites. They were Canaanites. But, but a treaty had been made between Israel and the Gibeonites, and it was a treaty before God. And, and therefore, Saul's violation required uh, payment for the sin that was, was perpetrated on these people. So God had sent a famine to the land because the people of Israel were going blithely along their way, marching down the road to this, this vast empire that, that David had created under the strength of God, this, this empire that stretched clear up to the Euphrates River up here. And they were moving without concern for the past, apparently. And so God said it was payday. And so he sent a drought, a famine. And this famine impacted the land for three straight years. And I, I highlighted last time that a drought in Israel was not like a drought in California today. A drought in California. We can have three years of drought in California and, and you know, basically we don't really feel it very much because we've got reservoirs all over the place. We've got the capacity to pull water up from underground. But in Israel in that time, there were no reservoirs and, and there was no capacity for deep drilling and, and there were no conduits bringing water from 300 miles away. And so you had immediate impact, no rain, no crops. That's just the way it was. No crops, no food. No food, you die. Uh, you, you didn't have the uh, FAO or United States international agencies bringing in carloads of food to feed the dying people. There was no way to provide for people who couldn't grow their own food. And so this was a tragedy that was sweeping over the land. God, David went to God to try to find out what was the reason for this drought, and God said it's because of, sins, of the sin of Saul against the Gibeonites. So David had to humbly go before the Gibeonites and say, what can we do to redress this sin? And the Gibeonites conferred together and they said, give us seven of Saul's descendants. Seven of Saul's descendants, and we're going to hang them at Gibeah before the Lord, and that will serve as expiation for the crime that has been perpetuated. This has happened, and so the seven men have been hung at Gibeah. Remember, Gibeah, Gibeah was the capital of the kingdom of Saul. It was Saul's hometown. And so in his hometown, these two sons and five grandsons were hung there before all the people. Of all of the family of those young men, only Rizpah, the mother of the two sons of Saul, who of course would have been older men by now, uh, but she was still young enough to be able to carry out what we read in this passage here. The mother of Armoni and Mephibosheth. This is not the Mephibosheth that David is keeping in his palace. This is his uncle who has the same name. And so she has chosen to watch over the corpses of these seven men. And so she demonstrates her love for her sons and her honor for the name of Saul and, and, and his family by bivouacking out on some sackcloth near the bodies for the reason, as we read there, that she could drive off the scavengers. 
to leave a body exposed, hanging in broad daylight, week after week after week through the processes of decay, was purposely done to humiliate the people who had died. And in this case, it was not just to humiliate the seven men, because in themselves, they had not done anything that at least we know about. But it was a humiliation of the name of Saul and of the family of Saul and of the character of Saul in his violation of the covenant that Israel had made before God. It was to shame the memory of Saul. I think Rizpah would have been a pathetic sight, would she not? If you'd passed there and you'd seen this, see this poor lady out there chasing off the birds by day and chasing off the beasts by night. She was, had to be busy doing this. And, and she remained at her self-appointed post, the scripture says, until the rains came. Until the rains came. Because when the rains came, that broke the drought, and the breaking of the, of the drought was the demonstration that God had accepted the expiation and that God had returned blessing on the land and had accepted the sacrifice that was made for the sins of Saul. Now the question is, when did those rains come? You remember last time I pointed out, the scripture told us that these men were hung before God at barley harvest. Barley is harvested, or was harvested, in that part of the year, uh, world in April. The climate in Israel is the same as it is here in Central California. Summers are hot and dry. It virtually never rains once you get much May comes, and pretty much you don't get any rain till October. So like here, what does that mean? If these men were hung in April, does that mean that she stayed there until October? When, when God regenerated the rains and returned them to their normal cycle? Or did God break the drought with a special rain that he gave in May or June, an unusual time for rain to come? That could very well be because that would, of course, demonstrate clearly that God had accepted and that God had forgiven and that God was now blessing the land again. But whatever the case, she had to be out there for many weeks, many weeks. You think about the uh, details of all of that. H how did she live out there for several weeks? Did she leave from time to time and go get food? Did somebody supply her with food? We don't know. I, I really have a strong feeling that people who were sympathetic, for her at least, probably provided her with food so she could maintain her vigil. David's heart was touched hearing about what Rizpah was doing. As Rizpah sought to honor the name of her sons and of her family, David was moved to make a gesture in her direction. When the bones were taken down from the gibbets and were going to be buried, David ordered that men go over to uh, Jabesh Gilead, which is over on the other side of the Jordan over here, and get the bones of Saul and Jonathan. Remember when Saul and Jonathan had been killed on the Mount Gilboa, that the uh, Philistines, there we go, the Philistines had taken their bodies and ha hanged them on the wall here of Bet-Shan, city right here in the Jordan Valley. They had nailed them to the wall. 
to, you know, to dishonor the name and, and, and the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. And the men of Jabeth Gilead had snuck over by night and taken the bodies down and taken them back and buried them under an oak tree at Jabesh Gilead. So David is now ordering that the bodies be exhumed from that burial site and taken to the family burial plot at Zela, along with the seven men who had just died. So all of these people would be buried in the right place. And why did he do this? Largely because of what Rizpah did. Her demonstration of her loyalty to her sons, her desire to honor the family even in the midst of their humiliation. And so David carried that out. And uh, we don't know exactly where Zella was. There's, today the site is lost. But it's pretty sure that here's Gibeah right here where the men were hung, it's, and that's where Saul's capital was. Zela was in Benjamin. Benjamin's a very small area, so Zela couldn't have been more than just a few miles from Gibeah, so somewhere in that area. So the bones were taken from, Bet, from, from Jabesh Gilead and brought down here to somewhere in this region, and they were all buried in the family plot of Kish, the father of Saul himself. The scripture tells us then at the end of that uh, passage that we read this morning in, in verse 14, after that, God was moved by entreaty for the land. God was moved by entreaty for the land. God's blessing renewed, was renewed on Israel because the sin had been dealt with. This phrase, I think, makes it very clear to us that God does not hear prayer until we have dealt with the sin in our lives. Sin must be cleansed for God to hear the prayer of His people. Israel was His people. This, I think, reminds us of the fact that we must heed the still, small voice of the Spirit of God. And how do we hear that still, small voice of the Spirit of God? This is how we hear it. Rarely are you going to hear God actually speak in your ear. This is how he speaks to most people most of the time all the way around the world. If we want him to hear our prayer, we must face our sin. We must not rationalize it. We must not justify it. We must not ignore it. We must confess it as David did here. Even though he was not responsible, David had nothing to do with it. Yet David had to go before the Gibeonites and ask them for what can be done to expiate the sin. David gives us a good example. Let me read from just one verse from Psalm 32, uh, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's what it takes, is confession, and God forgives. It doesn't take penance. That's a human way of dealing with things. That's a rationalistic way of dealing with things. To feel like that's just, just confessing is not enough, I've also got to go walk in a a bed of coals or lay in a bed of nails or some other such thing. I've got to punish my body. That's not scriptural. 
Scripture says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin. Because to confess our sin is to bow our knees and our heart and humble ourselves before God Almighty. Anything you do, your body is irrelevant compared to the humility of the spirit that it takes to truly confess sin. It took the blood of seven men to justify or to satisfy the justice of God concerning Saul's sin against Gibeon. You and I are so blessed by the fact that for the past 2,000 years, it's taken the blood of Christ alone, only the blood of Christ, to satisfy the justice of God for every man, woman, and child that has bowed the knee before Christ around the world for 2,000 years. We don't have to sacrifice somebody in our family to pay for our sin or, or offer ourselves to die to pay for our sin because Christ has already done it. The last part of this uh, chapter is, um, it sounds mundane when you read it, but it's really quite a, quite a blessing. Let's read it, verse 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now when the Philistines were at war against Israel, David went down and his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbibinab, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go ag again with us to battle, that you may not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, the Hushaite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. And there was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of jer the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war at Gath again, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hands and six hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also had been born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This particular passage is very fascinating because it gives to us a summary of four battles or four campaigns between Israel and the Philipp Philistines. And what's interesting here is this passage gives us no idea of the chronology here. Uh, I, I mean, we get a sense of the, them being serial uh, events, one after the other. But we are not told when these events took place, nor are we told how far apart they were. You know, was it one battle and, and giants killed, and the next day another battle and giants killed? Or were there weeks, months, years between the, the uprisings? When did this occur during the reign of David? Did it occur early? Did it occur late? It's late in the book, but that doesn't mean that the event occurred late in the history of David, even though the fact that he grows weary may indicate uh, towards the latter part of his reign. The Philistines had fought with Israel many, many times during the reign of King Saul. 
And the most famous encounter, of course, was the dramatic event which occurred in which David stood toe-to-toe, -to -toe, or nearly so at least, with Goliath and was able to slay him in the power of God. But as was already alluded to in this passage, earlier passage, Saul met his tragic end at the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines had invaded from their land down here, and, and they had come clear up here to the north to Mount Gilboa, which is a, you know, a, a fairly prominent uh, feature on the south side of the uh, Valley of Jezreel. If you go to Megiddo and look out across the plain of Jezreel, you can see the Nazareth Ridge and Mount Tabor and then Mount Gilboa uh, down there. And you can also, of course, see Mount Carmel. And, and so the battle was fought up here and uh, Saul was killed along with Jonathan. And this ended, of course, Saul's reign. But during David's reign, he had wars with the Philistines too. And we've already read earlier in the book of two routes of the Philistines, where David simply drove them away in, in utter disarray and routed them. However, we're now in the 21st chapter. And the last time the Philistines were mentioned in this book was the first verse of the 8th chapter. So we've gone through, what, 13 chapters or so before the Philistines show up again. And what's interesting is in the 8th chapter, the first verse, we read these words. David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hands of the Philistines. So we read in this passage that he not only defeated them, but he subdued them. And he took away their chief city, which was probably Gath, even though there were, it was a pentapolis of five major cities. Gath usually ends up being uh, listed as the, the chief city, or at least at this time was the chief city of the Philistines. And of course, that was at least the home of Goliath and of these other giants that we're reading about in this particular passage. Now, this map helps to illustrate what is believed by scholars. And that is, David may have subdued the Philistines, but he was not able to incorporate Philistia into David's empire. Because as you see here, it's outside the empire. Here's the border of the empire, the border of the empire. The Phoenicians and the Philistines, two coastal peoples, were apparently not incorporated. Uh, at least in the case of the Philistines, they were certainly under David's hegemony, but not under his occupying force. In other words, theoretically, they owed allegiance to David. Theoretically, they shouldn't do things that made David upset, but he didn't actually occupy their land. So subdue must be interpreted apparently in the sense of hegemony, not in the sense of conquest. Whereas these other areas were actually conquered by David's military force. So are we talking about the events that led to that subduing? Are these four giants and the, and the four uprisings that are listed here part of that subduing of Philistia? Or are they examples of the Philistines demanding their rights after they have been subdued? Uprisings against David's authority, against his hegemony, under the leadership of these four big dudes. Slow learners, yes. <laughs> Spiritually, this passage teaches us that in this life, we may have a victory 
But that's not the final victory. The final victory for us does not come until we take our last breath and pass across into paradise with our Lord. In this life, we never have a final victory until that moment. Because no matter how many times the enemy is defeated, he comes back. It's like that old song, the cat came back the very next day. <laughs> Only in this case, we're talking about Satan, the emissaries of darkness. They do return. We may, in the power of God, resist them one day, and the next day it comes from another angle. He comes with six toes and six fingers, you know, whatever, and attempts again. But the encouraging part is that we can continue to defeat him in the power of the risen Christ. If we depend upon our omnipotent Savior, we never will be defeated no matter how many times he comes, nor how many battles we fight against him. So in some ways, these four episodes we're reading are like that. It's kind of like a recurring bad dream. I thought we killed Goliath, and now he's coming again, and he's coming again, and he's coming again. In every case, a giant is involved. In every case, the giant is related to Goliath. It's almost like he was cloned. David had dramatically slain Goliath in the power of the Lord before all of Israel. And I think that's worth seeing here again, repeated. In verse 15 of this passage, we see that the first of these four events, when the Philistines invaded, David himself led the army down to meet the Philistines. And again, I want to remind you, the scripture is very accurate when it talks about down and up. When it says down and up in Scripture, it means up and down in altitude. It doesn't mean up north and down south because they didn't have maps like we have and they didn't develop this system of maps that we have because, you know, most of the land in the world is in the northern hemisphere. And so maps that were begun with the Greeks and, and then by the Romans and later Europeans have, have tended always to put north at the top. And so we say we're going up the map and then we're going down the map, you know. But this means he's going down from Jerusalem, which is at about 2,500 feet, to the plain of Philistia, which is on the coastal plain of the Mediterranean. So he's dropping a quarter of a mile, or that's closer to half a mile, isn't it? Uh, in elevation down to meet the Philistines. So it's very specific when it says down there. At that point, the battle begins. And David is fighting. He, he himself is in the battle. He's not back in camp saying, all right, you guys, you go down over there and fight, and you guys cut around over there and fight. He's down there with the troops. And he becomes face-to-face -face with Ishbibinob. Now, jot that little name down in for your... For your kids to, to name their, your grandkids. <laughs> and here's little Ishbi. <laughs> Ishbi be Nob. That means he whose dwelling is Nob. So, you know, you could have Ishbi be Redding. <laughs> you know, or something like that. He is one of the descendants of the giants. The scriptural word, the Hebrew word here that is translated giant is Rapha. And there's a valley to the west of Jerusalem called the Valley of the Raphaim. The Valley of the giants. It's believed that he was probably a son of Goliath. This, we're told this giant carried a spear whose weight, meaning the weight of the head on the end, was 300 shekels of bronze. That translates into about eight pounds. 
Now that sounds pretty significant, but if you remember back to Goliath, his spearhead weighed twice that, 600 shekels, so it was 16 pounds. You know, I don't know about you, but carrying a stick around with 16 pounds hanging on the end of it, it you know, you'd be a little wearing after a while. So obviously, uh, this indicates the great strength of these giants. The scripture tells us that it was obvious that David was weary, that he was wearing down, and so Ishbibinab pressed the attack. My chance to kill the king, the slayer of Goliath. Maybe he was thinking, the slayer of my father, if, if that's the relationship here. And so he presses the attack, and as he presses the attack, Abishai steps in alongside David and enables David to slay the giant. What a lesson here concerning bearing one another's burdens. Can't you just see it coming? We bear one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. Abishai has stepped in to help David bear his burden. He has come alongside. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside of us and helps us with the burdens that we have to bear. But what a lesson this is to us about our bearing one another's burdens. When we hold one another accountable, when we pray for we have and made more than conquerors. Satan knows when we're weak. Satan knows when we're beaten down. He knows when we're tired. He knows when our emotions are out of whack. And that's the hour he, he attacks. Just as Ishbibinob was pressing against David because he saw David flagging, now's my chance to move in for the kill. So it is with Satan. And that's why it's very important that we pray for one another. That's why it's important when we are in that situation, we ask for prayer, we call somebody, we get some help to carry us through that time of battle. Whether we realize it or not, we have a stake in one another's success. Because we're all part of the same body. We're all part of the same kingdom. If we fail to uphold one another in prayer and, and whatever other way we can, we're contributing to the victory of Satan. We're contributing to the demise of the church. Now, I realize the church will not ultimately be destroyed because Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. But that doesn't mean a lot of blood won't flow in the process and a lot of saints won't perish along the way because they will. Well, the scripture tells us when the word got around that David himself was nearly killed, his men became incensed. And they insisted, they came to him and they insisted that you don't ever go to battle with us again because you put yourself in jeopardy. Why was that important? Because your death will extinguish the lamp of Israel. That's what they thought of their king. Never before in the history of this country had such glory been Israel's. Never. And they knew that it was because God had used David to create this great empire and to give them peace like they had never known peace before. They had true shalom in Israel 
for much of the time of the Davidic Empire. They didn't have to worry about, oh, I see some group of people moving over there. I, I need to be careful. Are they a band of evil men coming to attack us? Are they Midianites or Amalekites or Moabites or whoever? I mean, these were, a lot of these people were nomadic peoples who ranged over the landscape. And as I've highlighted before, sure, nomads lived by raising animals, but their excitement in life came from raiding communities and capturing women and, and gold, and that's the only excitement in their lives other than, you know, you get a little boring after a while just raising donkeys and camels. And, and, and so to have peace in the land, Pax David, the Davidic peace, and they knew David was the catalyst for all of this, and his death would be disastrous. And I think some of them also understood that he was the light of God in Israel. God's light was shining through David onto the people of Israel, and they knew to lose him might jeopardize God's favor. In the next chapter, which we'll be getting to uh, soon, uh, David writes, You are my lamp, O Lord. And then he says, The Lord illumines my darkness. In verse 18 of this passage, we find a second giant named Saph, S-A-P-H. The word means go goblet or, or, or basin, you know, some kind of a water-holding uh, vessel. And, and he, he too apparently was the son of Goliath. And the Philistines rallied around this champion at a place called Gob. We don't know where Gob was. It apparently was near Gath here. Gob means locusts, as in grasshoppers. So that could be almost any place because grasshoppers are always a pain over there. It became the site for yet another giant slayer to, to emerge on the scene. Now, this passage is very brief, but it hides a very, very important truth. And the truth is in the name of the Israelite giant slayer. His name is Sibikai, which means Yahweh intervenes. Yahweh intervenes. Here's a man whose name is so appropriate to the task. Yahweh intervenes. And it reminds us of the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord, not to us. God truly intervenes on our behalf. If we trust Him and if in faith we commit our way to Him, He will slay the giants that threaten us. Brad? Question for you. I notice in here it talks about the different giants being slain. Obviously, there's battles involved there. But it doesn't mention anything else about the battles. Right. My question is, back then, wasn't it very common for if, if the champion was slain, the battle was pretty much over at that point for the side that the, the champion was? Theoretically, yes. Theoretically, yes. Pretty much, that they were done. Everybody ran the other direction. Right. Is is that pertinent to this, or are they just? I was just curious because normally there's something about the rest of the battle, how many died. Yeah. And there isn't, as you yeah. see there. We don't know how many Philistines there were. We don't know how long the battle took. It almost looks like it's a one-on-one -on -one thing, a champion versus champion in every situation. And the fact that the Philistines do not prevail may mean that, okay, we're beaten again, we'll go home, but now we've got another giant. We've got another champion. Let's do it again. It's kind of like the enemy never gives up. Jonathan? Well, also, I would think that if they were actually you know, attacking Israel, they would make some progress. Into it, having all the <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. 
Right, all the battles being fought in Philistia. <laughs> yeah, they're not making much progress here. As, as is true of the enemy. Satan does not make much progress in our lives if we confront him with the Lord, if Yahweh intervenes and grants the victory here. I hate to leave it here. Let, don't? Okay. Verse 19. Another Philistine uprising occurs near the city of Gob. You know, Brad, they just don't give up. They're, I mean, they're, they're back at it again. As in the previous case, the battle centers have gone on the Philistine champion and the Israelite champion. The Israelite was a man from Bethlehem whose name is Elhanan, which means God has been gracious. God has been gracious. And this passage tells us that the victim was Goliath the Gittite. Whoops! He's been resurrected and he's back. Oh no! Well, if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, which is the parallel passage, it tells us that this was Lami, brother of Goliath. So many scholars think that in the Masoretic, Masoretic text, as they kept copying and copying and copying, somehow the brother got dropped out uh, of the uh, 2 Samuel passage. And so it should read, Goliath the brother, I mean, uh, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, rather than Goliath the Gittite. Whatever the case is. This could be Goliath Jr. You know, it could be Goliath the Gittite, only his son, Jr. Only Jr. is now big boy. And uh, because the scripture tells us that he wields a weapon the same size that Goliath did. That his spear was the size of a weaver's beam. And remember we talked about that, the looms of that day. You had upright and crossbars that held the looms together and the uprights were usually about two and a half inches in diameter. And so we're talking about a big hunk of wood here. You need a big hunk of wood to hang 15, 16 pounds of steel out on the end or bronze or anything else. I should say iron, not steel. And it's interesting here, he is slain in single combat with Elhanan with God will be gracious. One is killed by Yahweh intervenes, another is killed by God will be gracious. There's no doubt that the enemy is too strong for us. We try to deal with the enemy one-on-one -on -one and we are in deep trouble. We must keep reminding ourselves that we have Sibaki, we have Elhanan, God will send Abishai alongside whatever form that comes in, others to pray for us, the Holy Spirit standing with us, an angel coming to minister to us, as the scripture teaches, because the battle belongs to the Lord. Let me just finish this passage. We'll run over a couple of minutes here. Finally, we have the last of the giants of Gath, of the Rapha. It's, his name is not given. Where we're told he was a man of great stature, maybe even larger than Goliath. If he was the son of Goliath, it's possible, you know, that he grew even bigger than Goliath did. But what's unusual about him is he has 24 digits. You know, six fingers and six toes. Whether that was any advantage, I don't know. But uh, he, we are told that he defied Israel, just like Goliath did. He defied Israel. And in this case, David's nephew, Jonathan, rose to the challenge. The final verse tells us that all four of these Philistine champions were sons of Goliath in Gath.
or seemed to have been sons of Goliath and Gath. At least we know they were from the same family. Whether one was his brother and the other three were his sons, whatever the case may be, they were all related to Goliath. And even though there is no mention of God, read that passage from 15 through 22. God's name does not appear there in stated or alluded to. Even though there's no mention of God in this passage, I think we can assume that just as David was empowered by God to have victory over Goliath, so Abishai, Sibikai, Elhanan, and Jonathan prevailed in the power of God over the great enemy. And so will we, because we have the overwhelming strength of God Almighty, and there is no enemy too great to be resisted. Jonathan means Yahweh has given. Yahweh intervenes. Yahweh has given. God has been gracious. They are with us. Testimony to the power of God to walk with us. If God be for us, who can stand against us?